invited you over to their house, would you clean up before you went? Or would you go like that? Most of you would. I mean, if your husband came home like that, you would tell him to what? Hose off outside in the garage before you came in the house. When your kids would come home like that, if you've ever had kids, especially boys, there are a number of occasions they came home like that. There are times growing up on a farm, my wife couldn't recognize me by the stuff I had on the outside. And my favorite thing to do was to what? Give me a hug. Silage, oats, wheat, barley all over you. You couldn't see who you were. My dad, there are things that I could tell you that my dad's gotten involved in where things have exploded and manure piles have exploded and all the things that go with that. And he's covered from head to foot. Believe me, he would not come in the house like that. Now, if you have enough sense to know that you've got to change the outside stuff when you look like that, doesn't it make sense that we could easily figure out that maybe there's some things on the inside that we ought to change? There's some dirt that we need to get rid of. There's some things we need to take off. And every once in a while, we need to really consider the fact, maybe I need a change of clothes. Not the outside stuff, but the inside stuff. Last Sunday morning, we began the last half of Colossians. These last two chapters, I love this book. Somebody sent me a note this week. Love this book. Love Colossians. I've read it before. Maybe you've read it before. I think this last chapter and a half have some of the most powerful things that God could have said through the Apostle Paul. I love how God uses him and his background to communicate, but he really hammers some truth home in Galatians and in, in Colossians and Galatians and Ephesians and Philippians. Yeah, put those two together for a while. Just really hammer some truth home. Last Sunday morning, we started the second half of this book, and God, through the Apostle Paul, gives us some really powerful advice, and not just advice for advice's sake. Like, hey, you ought to consider this. Just think about it. You don't have to do this, but think about it. It's not that kind of advice at all. He's giving us a very clear description of the transformation that takes place and should continue to take place. Those two key elements are incredibly important. Should take place, has to take place, needs to take place, and continues to take place as we embrace Christ as our Savior and Lord. Now that statement has two assumptions. One is that you've started the journey, that you have embraced Christ Jesus as Lord. That's the beginning of your journey with God. It's your beginning of your journey with Christ. It's the beginning of the transformation process. We believe that people of Community Alliance Church are people being transformed by faith in Christ. In Christ is a key element. That I recognize that I'm a sinner in need of a Savior and that he came and died for me. He shed his blood on the cross. He gave his life so that I don't have to even though I know I should. And I recognize that and acknowledge that and I ask his forgiveness and I invite him into my life. I let him take control of my life. That's the beginning of your journey with God. That's allowing him to become your savior. Lord, or the Lord of my life, is the ongoing process, the ongoing part of the journey where I realize that I cannot live this Christian life on my own, that I come to the point of full surrender to God. Now, maybe you did that at the point of salvation. There are a number of people that do. But a lot of times we come out of darkness into light 
We get rid of the things that Paul tells us to in this section of Scripture, and we walk into Christianity, we try to live this life sheer on sheer willpower, or I can do it, I can do it, I can do it, I can be the kind of person that God wants me to be. And then I recognize I can't do it. I need to give my life in full surrender to Him. And so I come and say, Jesus, I've tried to live this Christian life on my own, and I realize I can't. And he would simply say, I know. I don't want to be Lord of your life. I want everything. I want full commitment. Die to yourself, live for me every day of your life. It's an ongoing journey, but it does come to that starting point where I embrace Christ as Savior, I step over the line, out of darkness, into Christianity, and then I come to that point where I'm absolutely fully surrendered to God. Now, you're also doing that every day. Paul said, I die daily. Be continually filled with the Holy Spirit. That is an ongoing process. But it's got to start somewhere. Paul said, I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live. Christ lives in me. The life that I now live in this body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I continually, every day of my life, surrender to God, to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. A.W. Tozer, one of the greatest writers in the last couple of centuries, who happens to be a CNMA pastor, said this in one of his books, in every Christian's heart, there's a cross and throne. And the Christian is on the throne. I'm in charge of my own life till he puts himself on the cross, which is when I die to myself, which is what Paul said in Galatians. If he refuses the cross or to die to himself, he remains on the throne. This is the key element. Perhaps that's at the bottom of the backsliding and worldliness among gospel believers today. We want to be saved, but we insist that Christ do all the dying. That's a really powerful, profound phrase. We want to be saved, but we insist that Christ does all the dying. Paul says, I die daily. I die to myself. Jesus said, I take up your, take, you need to take up your cross daily and follow me. It is a commitment. It's that point in time where I know I've done that, but I also recognize that it's an ongoing part of the journey. Now, as I take those steps of transformation, that word that we use, it's on that big sign out front when you walk back toward the children's wing, and it's on the front of your bulletin every day. When I'm going through that process of transformation, it's pretty dramatic. It's like the metamorphosis that takes place between a caterpillar and a butterfly. Neither one of them look like each other, right? I mean, you can see some things that after a while take on a change or a transformation of some kind, but... One of the best examples of transformation or metamorphosis, similar word, is the caterpillar to a butterfly. It does not look the same. It goes through this process and it becomes something different when it comes out on the other side. If no one can tell the difference that Christ has made in your life from what you were before Christ to what you're becoming in Christ, you may want to consider the possibility that the process hasn't begun. Now, I want to say that honestly. If no one can tell the difference to what you were before Christ, to what you're becoming in Christ. Now, I know that's different for a, a five-year-old. Very few five-year-olds, when they give the testimony, said, I lived a life of sin. I was rampant in sin all of my four years. And then I recognized that vile corruption of sin. And at five, I committed my life to Christ. I'm dramatically not the same guy I was. All right, now I get that. But you, you know what I'm talking about. If, if no one can tell the difference of what you were before you came to Christ 
and what you are now becoming in Christ, maybe you'll want to consider the process that the journey or the concept that the journey hasn't begun. I mean, the worst thing that anybody could ever say to you who's known you fairly well, I didn't know you were a Christian. Right? I mean, who would want that said? If you're a follower of Christ and are in this journey of transformation, who would want that said about someone who knows me at least fairly well? I didn't know you were a Christian. Paul said, you'll know. <laughs> it's pretty obvious. Jesus said, I'm telling you right now, you'll know which ones are mine. A lot of people out there claiming to be a Messiah. They're not. I am. A lot of people out there claiming to be disciples. They're, you'll tell. You'll be able to tell. You know, the one we use all the time by their love for one another, and we'll talk about that today more specifically next Sunday, but there are a lot of ways to tell. In case we're not sure what that transformation process looks like or how it takes place, Paul gives us some insights. And God inspired him to write this. Colossians chapter 3, that's where you are. Verse 1. I'm going to read 17 verses this time. Sat down with a patriarch or a uh, patriarch. A friend of mine this week, and I talked about last Sunday's message and and I said, I had a lot, of, lot packed into this. And we talked about that. And we looked at this Sunday's message that was already written and decided there's, there's, there needs to be pulled in half and really profoundly concentrate on some of these elements because it's such incredible material. Any of you are teachers? How many of you are teaching in some capacity or another? You know there's two types of teachers. You can either teach material or students. Did you know that? And, and many teachers teach material. I've got to get to the end. I, I got to get all the material in. Some pastors are like that. I can be like that at times. There's others who teach students. I want to make sure you understand it. I want to make sure you get it. And, and we'll all have a tendency. We, parents are like that. Every parent in here is a teacher at some point or the other. And, and you want to make sure they get it. Not just because I said so. Although that's our standard answer. Why? Because I said so. And they're always going to ask you what? Why? And you want to help them understand the why in that. Since you've been raised with Christ, now that means the process has begun. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Transition your minds. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died. Remember? You're not on the throne. He is. And your life is now hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you'll also appear with him in glory. Now, this is where it takes place. Get rid of. Change your clothes, put to death whatever belongs to your earthly nature. And then he gives us some examples. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. Don't ever forget that. You used to walk in those ways that you, in the life that you once lived. Remember what I said a moment ago. But now you've got to rid yourself of all of those things. Change your clothes. Things like anger and rage and malice and slander and filthy language from your lips. Don't lie to each other. You've taken off that old self with its practices and, and you put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge and the image of its creator. Here there's no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, scanty, and slave or free. But Christ is all and in all. Now, in light of all of that, verse 12, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, put on, clothe yourself with compassion, with kindness, Humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other. 
Forgive one another. If any of you have a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you, which is the key to understanding that verse. And over all of these things, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body, you are called to peace and be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms and hymns and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your heart. And whatever you do, whether in word or do, deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Now, let's unpack it. Therefore, see that word therefore in verse 12? In light of what I just said, in light of the transformation, the dying to yourself, the things you need to get rid of, in light of everything I just said, as God's people, when you cross the line, who are desperately and deeply loved by him, you need to understand that. Now, we'll, we'll tie it together next Sunday morning, this passage in communion. You've heard the phrase, and, and, and I want to be careful in how I say it, it's not about you. Well, it is about you. That's why he came, for you. Now, there are a lot of things that aren't about you and me, even though we wish they were and want them to be. But his salvation and what he did on the cross is about you. He died for you. You're that loved by God. And I need you to understand that, Paul says. You are dearly, look at the word he used, chosen and dearly loved. I mean, some of you don't even feel dearly loved by your spouse. <laughs> dearly loved. You are that loved by God. You are his chosen people. You're pursuing holiness. Now, in light of that, this is how I want you to look. I want you to take off that filthy set of clothes, and I want you to replace them with some new ones. God's ultimate goal for our life, Romans 8, 29, says it very clearly this way. My goal for your Christian life is to be conformed to the image of my son. That's, that's the ultimate goal. I want you to be conformed to the image of my son. I want you to look like Jesus. Not the outer garment. The Son of God movie is just coming out and a lot of hype about it. Appreciate the, the power that went behind that. It's fascinating how well that thing is doing and will do. And, and, and uh, the timing of it all. To be able to show and display the Son of God. It's not that you look like him with that outer garment or look like him with that face and, and all of those things, but you really do take on his characteristics. You understand what that looks like. And it's not a matter of doing what Jesus would do, that's activity. It's internal character transformation that this talks about this morning. And I want to be really clear about that. And I'll point it out again at the end. So, what are some of those character traits? Well, let's look at them. First one he points out is compassion. Means showing tender mercy. It, it, it's doing compassionate things that flow from the heart. Not just showing compassion because I'm supposed to, but it just is there. It's a it's a natural outcome. It flows from my heart. I see a need and something deep inside me wants to respond to that need. It's not just feeling sorry for someone. It's responding to that. It's recognizing that need and wanting to do something about it. Mark used that similar word to describe Jesus' feelings as he walked toward Galilee. It says he was moved with compassion. Something inside of him 
wanted to minister to these people. Something inside of him, he was desperately aware, deeply aware, I'm sorry, of the fact that these are sheep without a shepherd. They, they need direction. They need answers. And he provided that. Something deep inside of him wanted to respond. One of the better examples is in the New Testament in the story that we're all familiar with of the Good Samaritan. Remember that story? Guy beat up, laying alongside the road. A lot of people passed by him. What's fascinating about the story is every one of them saw him. It's not like I didn't know he was there. I, I didn't know he was there. They saw him. They knew that was there. They knew he was there. Any of you walk to an inner city and see homeless people? Any, any, any of you? You all stay in Butler all of your life? Never been to the big city? I love how my parents still talk about going in town. And we're going to town. You know, we leave in the country and go into the city. You, you, you see them. We just came back from Africa. You cannot walk anywhere without seeing beggars and people on the street. They saw him. Even the religious people saw him, ignored him. The Samaritans saw him and what? Responded. Did something. Now, that doesn't mean if I'm a follower of Christ and I'm going to display compassion, then that means i got to go to the inner city and help out every single person that I see. And that if I don't, and I saw them and I don't do anything, I'm not a believer, I'm not a follower of Christ, and I don't show compassion. I'm not saying that at all. But I'm saying as you walk through this transformation process, you begin to recognize that there's something in me that every so often I see a need and the Spirit of God says that's the one you can meet. You can respond to that one. You can meet that person's need. You can help them out. And you know it and sense it in there. And you feel the Spirit of God speaking to you about that particular situation. And you want to do something about it. Sometimes it's people who you can't do anything about, who have nothing to do with you. And other times it's the story of the prodigal father, <coughs> the prodigal son, whose father, when he saw him a long way off, ran toward him. Dramatically different story than the Good Samaritan. Had no connection with one another. Didn't even know who he was. Just wanted to respond to an obvious need that he saw. In this case, the prodigal son took everything from the father. You're going to hear that story in, in uh, family experience today as well. But took all his father's uh, inheritance, everything he did, and spent it on his own and found himself in a situation where he had to come back because there's no place else to turn. And the father could have easily said, what? You made your bed. You lie in it, buddy. Don't come back here. You leave this house. Don't come back here. I know of kids that have heard that phrase. This father moved with compassion. You almost picture in your mind as Jesus tells this story, the guy standing there every day of his journey after that son is gone or while that son is gone, looking down the road to see if he's going to come back. When I get to heaven, there are so many people I want to sit down and have conversations with. It's mind-numbing. No wonder we're going to be there forever. It'll take me a thousand years just to get through the conversations that I want to have. But I want to have a conversation with him. And I want to, I want to see, I want to go to the DVD library. And I want to look through all of these stories. And I want to watch them unfold. And I picture, I've always pictured in my mind this guy standing there. And maybe every day coming out of the tent looking down. Just maybe today is the day. He's going to come back. And then when he does, after all he did to him and he turned his back on him and took his inheritance and wasted it away, comes back and the father comes out and responds with compassion. 
not doing the right thing because he was supposed to do the right thing, but what was inside of him wanted to be expressed. He threw the kid the biggest party he'd ever seen. Now, you go on to read the story, you'll find out that the older son did not have this kind of compassion at all. Nothing inside of him had changed. There's a fascinating conversation. Uh, Robbie Zacharias is one of my favorite uh, apologists today. I mean, he's a guy who's just brilliant, a friend of ours. He's on the radio in the mornings, and he talks a lot about uh, British journalist Malcolm Mugridge. And he has a conversation with Mother Teresa. It goes like this after... He met her, he said, spending a few days with you, referring to Mother Teresa, he said, I, I've been struck by the joy that you sisters show. And what you do that an outsider would think almost impossible to do as you're here with these lepers all the time. Mother Teresa said, that's the spirit of our society, that total surrender, loving trust, and cheerful attitude. We've got to be able to radiate the joy of Christ and express it then in our actions. If our actions are just useful actions and we give no joy, then our People will never be able to rise up and hear what we really want them to hear, and that is the voice of God. We want them to come closer to God. We want them to feel that they are loved. If we come to them with a sad face, they're going to be even more depressed. E even though you give them what they need, he says, she said, it's not very often that we give them what they need. What they need much more is what we offer them. And these 20 years of working with these lepers, I've come more and more to realize that being unwanted is the worst disease in the human experience. We've got medicine for leprosy, and lepers can be cured. For all kinds of diseases, there are medicines and cures, but for being unwanted and willing hands to serve and serving from a heart of love, that's the worst kind of disease. As you take on Christ... And as the transformation begins to take place, one of the things that flow out of that relationship with Jesus, of every day dying to myself, is compassion that sees and recognizes things around me and then listening to the Spirit of God as to which one he wants me to meet. Because you can't meet them all. One of the most amazing verses in all of Scripture is in John 17 when Jesus said, I finished everything you sent me here to do. Now, if you're on a practical level, and you're Jesus, and you're hearing him say that, you've got to say to yourself, oh, wait, whoa, 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 wait a minute, there's a lot more you could do. And he says, I know what I've come here to do, and that's the key. Second character trait, kindness. means being good, specifically to people. One of the most amazing portraits to me of kindness in Scripture is King David's treatment of his friend Jonathan's son, who happened to be the grandson of Saul, who was the original king or the king before David who tried to kill him, tried to kill David on a number of occasions. And finally, after Saul died and Jonathan died, David said to his servants, is there anybody here that I can show kindness to? And they said, well, there's a crippled boy. His name is Mephibosheth. And so David invited him to his table. And he didn't let him sit on the outside, didn't let him sit in a corner somewhere. He invited him right to the king's table. And there's not a time probably that communion goes by that I don't think about this story as crippled as I was, as needy as I was, that God not just invited me to sit in a pew somewhere, but invited me to the king's banquet table. Kindness is something that, again, is showing tender mercy from the heart. And I'm being gentle about it. 
Humility. Another one, it's the opposite of arrogance and pride. Has nothing to do with self or self-depreciation or being down on yourself. The humble know who they are in Christ. They clearly understand their strengths and weaknesses. It's that they don't have to flaunt it. They don't have to have center stage. They know who they are in Christ, and that's good enough for them. If you think you have that one down, <laughs> you probably don't. If I were to mention it, Brad, Brad that sang last Sunday morning, to me, one of the epitomes of humility. If I were to mention that name, and you're sitting there saying, ooh, choose me, choose me, or why didn't you say me? You probably don't have it. I know I wrestle with that. The people that fascinate me in service of the kingdom are the ones who are willing to serve anywhere and are never recognized. We've, we've got Sunday school teachers here that you would never know who've been teaching since I got here 18 and a half years ago, who were teaching before that, who are teaching in some of the most obscure places that no one will ever see, who are serving in ways that no one will ever notice, who will never get recognized, never get acknowledged, and no one will ever say their name. They just love what they're doing, and they serve with class and distinction, but they're okay with that, and they, they know who they are in Christ, and they're comfortable with that, and they don't have to be recognized. They don't have to know that everyone knows their name or knows what they've done or knows what they're accomplishing or pointing it out. They don't have to have center stage. They're okay with just being who they are and serving in a variety of ways and, and being okay with that. And don't always, not only have to have the limelight, they just don't even have to be acknowledged. Humility is something that's so deep inside that you honestly have a hard time recognizing you have it. Because it's just who you are. Meekness, the NIV translates as gentleness. Not weakness. It's best defined as strength under control. In this case, when Christ controls my life, <laughs> I love this phrase, when Christ controls my life, I don't have to control others. And I'm okay with that. I, I can respond to any situation with gentle strength and confidence. Jesus said the meek are the ones who are going to inherit the earth. What's fascinating about this entire section of Scripture, and you'll notice it again, I'll point it out to you every week because I don't want you to miss this one. What you will notice about all of these character traits is that Paul is laying them out right before he talks about home life. Humility, kindness, gentleness, meekness. He talks about all of these character internal traits right before he said, now, let me talk about how this looks in your home. We get to verse 17 and 18. We talk about the wife submitting to the husband and the husband loving his wife. And we get caught up in all of those words and semantics of what they mean. And we miss the point when Paul said, see, all of these character traits, one of the best ways they're evidenced, one of the best ways they're displayed is how you treat one another in the home. With humility, with gentleness with grace, with tenderness, with compassion. Patience, my favorite. My favorite is patience. I, I have this one mastered. If you know me well, you know this is the one I wrestle with the most. Someone says to me, you know, I, I get patient with people in lines. I get patient driving behind people. I, I said to my police friends all the time, who actually gave these people driver's license? I don't know how they ever got a driver's license. 
Were you there in the car? Why would you have given them a driver's license? They have no idea how to drive. When you go to the Clearview Mall, this lane here goes this way and this lane here goes this way. Why would you get in this lane when you're going this way? You get in this lane to go this way. I don't understand why you're in this lane. Right? How many of you have been to the Clearview Mall and had that discussion in your head? Thank you very much. I had this discussion constantly in my head. And I get this little voice in my head of someone who said to me, you ought to pray for them. I am praying for them. I'm praying to get out of the way. Feel better now? <laughs> the translation for patience is long-suffering. The ability to endure difficult people and situations without the need to retaliate or without the need to blow up. It doesn't mean you can't get angry. Anger is a human response. It's how I display the anger and to whom I display it. When you look at all of these, you notice something very unique about all of them. All of these characteristics are not activities, they're attitudes. When you look at this section of Scripture, you can see why Jesus got so frustrated in the New Testament with religious people because they got so bound up in activities. And Jesus kept saying, it's not about activities. It is about attitude. It is about character development. It is about who you are on the inside, not what you're doing on the outside. Those things then become a byproduct of who you are on the inside. You're going to serve in a hundred different capacities, not so you get recognized, just because you want to serve. You see a need, you fill it. You, you show gentleness and love and compassion and tenderness. You show patience with people you don't think deserve it. Matter of fact, look at how he goes on. Verse 13, this gets harder as he goes. Bear with each other. Forgive one another. If you have a grievance against someone, and then he sets the ultimate bar as high as you can get but he also reminds us of where it comes from he said forgive why because you've been forgiven and once you understand forgiveness and grace you're more willing to extend it if you've not received forgiveness you don't understand grace you're certainly not going to give it bear with one another and first to giving others the benefit of the doubt giving people space to grow allowing them to make mistakes Peter came to Jesus and said, okay, this forgiveness thing, I get it. How long? How often? How about a half a dozen? Seven times. Sounds good. Biblical number. How about that? Jesus said, no, 70 times seven. You can almost see Peter in his head doing the math. Okay, when I get to 491, they're dead. Is seven times seven 49? Okay. All right. <laughs> I'm shooting trap on Tuesday night with some guys, and you, you get a slice, or you get one in a circle if you don't. And one of the guys, he actually goes here, and he saw me standing there, and I'm counting the lines. And he said, why don't you just take the circles and subtract? I said, I can add. I can't subtract. I do. <laughs> you can almost see Peter in your head doing the math, and then coming to that point, I'm going to get him then. Jesus said, then you don't get it. It's not a matter of keeping score. That's why the love passage that we'll tie into this next week is so profound. That Paul would tie those two in together. It's building people up, not putting them down. See that within the context of marriage. It is extending grace. It infers that I've received grace, and because of that, I'm willing to extend that. Now, obviously, he ties into this context here the issue of forgiveness, because forgiveness is the very heart of the gospel. The gospel. 
At the very core of the Christian experience of salvation is our coming to God and asking for his forgiveness for our sins and receiving this extraordinarily extravagant gift of forgiveness provided by Jesus' death on the cross. The rub of this phrase, of this section of Scripture, comes with the phrase, forgive others as we have been forgiven. Once you receive forgiveness from God, you fully understand that. And once you fully understand that, we become people who are willing to extend grace. People who understand what we've received from God, who really want to extend it to others. Where the slate literally gets wiped clean. You've all had to hit that delete button on your computer, right? And then when you go to permanently delete, it'll ask you a second question. Are you sure you want to delete this? And what do you have to decide? Yes, you'll never believe this. These kids this morning in Upstreet Theater are going to get a delete all button as a go away gift. I had no idea that these were going to tie in together in family experience. They're going to get one of these this morning to remember. It's not a matter of saying, okay, no problem, I forgive you. It is absolutely second time. Are you sure you want to wipe the slate clean and take it away as if it never existed? And you say, yes, I do. I don't want to carry this anymore. Forgiveness is one of the most powerful demonstrations of what's taking place inside. And it's not always easy. I, I love a, a lot of contemporary Christian music. I listen to it all the time. 10th Avenue North uh, writes a song called Forgiveness. I can't believe what she said. I can't believe what he did. Don't they know the wrong they did? Don't they know what they did? Maybe there's something I've missed. How can they treat me like this? Uh, it's wearing out my heart the way they... Do this, the way they disregard, this is love, this is hate. We, we've got a choice to make. Father, won't you forgive them? They don't know what they're doing. And it's a powerful song. What's interesting about that, if we're really honest, that always isn't true. Because there are times in your life when someone has done something to you and they know exactly what they're doing. I love the premise of the song and I totally understand it. But there are times in your life when there are people that have done something, and it's, it's wonderful to quote the verse of Jesus uh, as he looked down at the cross and recognized what they were doing. And to be honest with you, I think he was saying, they have no idea what they just set in motion. But there are people in your life and my life who know exactly what they're doing, and they did it to you anyway. And now you hear this call to forgiveness, and you're saying, that's so hard. Every once in a while, we feel like James and John, the disciples of Jesus in Luke chapter 9 when the when the Samaritans didn't accept Jesus or invite him into their town I, I love this phrase because I've said it in my heart at times and I probably said the words out loud that they said Jesus do you want us to call down fire from heaven and just get rid of them I the phrase is fascinating because they've never called down fire from heaven before what makes them think they're going to do it now but the essence of what they're saying is get them Jesus right, let's do it let's just rid of them and I look at that and I'm thinking, oh, man, that's exactly what I want every once in a while. I don't want to forgive. I know what they did to me. you have any idea how that hurt? <laughs> and then the Spirit of God says, sure do. I sure do. Forgive. As you have been forgiven. Matthew West is a, just so many writers that are powerful and they're writing, he does a song called Forgiveness. It's the hardest thing to give away and the last thing on your mind today. It always goes to the heart of those who don't deserve. 
It's the opposite of how you feel when the pain that cause, they cause is just too real. It takes everything you have to do to say the word, forgive. It flies in the face of all your pride. It moves away the maddened side. It's always anger or your own worst enemy, even when the jury and the judge so you, says you want to hold a grudge. And the whisper in your ear said, set it free, forgiveness. It's on to show me how the to love the unlovable, the unreachable, the impossible. Show me how. I want to clear the bitterness away. I, I, I can't even set a prisoner free. There's no end to what his power can do if I really understand the issue of forgiveness. Because what I have found when I'm willing to do it, that I have found that the prisoner that it really sets free is me. And his words, but what you will see through the eyes of grace is the prisoner that really feels free is you. I want to finally set it free. I want you to show me the grace that it needs. Help me to give what you gave me, he says in that song, forgiveness. Who do you need to forgive? It will eat at you like a cancer. It's not about activity. It is internal transformation. It displays compassion and love and tenderness and grace that gives each other the benefit of the doubt, that displays forgiveness even when they don't deserve it and gives it because the one that really then gets free is me. Father, your words are powerful. They convict. They point out. They speak. And I thank you for it. I can't exist without it. So, Lord, I, I, for my friends and my family here this morning who really are in this journey of transformation, who want to be like Jesus, and maybe even here wrestling this morning with anger and resentment and bitterness because of what's been done to them, I pray, oh God, by the power of your Spirit, that this morning, this week, today, as they process your word, that they will be free and find freedom in you. Listen just for a minute to the Spirit. I know I'm over time. I'm so sorry. But listen to the Spirit for just a minute. for my family and friends this morning for me who wrestles with some of these things and specifically this one as much as anyone thank you for the freedom that we can find in Jesus pray that you will provide that today